You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Government vs. the Robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will affect politics in the future. This week we're going to be taking a look at the psychology of politics, asking if we really have become more tribal, if we've all been collectively triggered, and what we need to do to start to think about our individual place within a larger us. I'm joined by Alex Evans. Alex is the founder of the Collective Psychology Project. He's a senior fellow at New York University working on political polarisation, and previously he was campaigns director at Avaz. Alex, it's great to have you here in the studio. Great to be here. Uh, I, you like me, spent a lot of time working in international development and um, currently aren't focusing on international development. I wondered if, first off, you could sort of tell me a bit about why not. Sure. Well, I guess my theory of change all through those years in international development was basically that of lots of policy wonks. I thought you got lots of evidence, got it in front of the right policymakers, and change would happen. And that was definitely the idea that sustained me through years at DFID, years of uh, writing policy papers in and around the United Nations. And then all came to a head in about 2011 when I was the writer of a thing called the Secretary General's High Level Panel on Global Sustainability at the UN, which in a lot of ways was my dream job. It was a really high, you know, high level group of policymakers with some space to think. And I figured that getting big ideas in front of them would produce big answers and then they'd go out and champion it at the Rio Sustainable Development Summit that was due to take place the following year. And in the event, it was a very dispiriting experience. There was really no willingness among that panel's members to engage with those big questions. And so that set me thinking, well, if evidence and arguments don't change the world in the way that I hope they would, what does? And that sent me on this odyssey that started with becoming very interested in collective storytelling, something that culminated in a book I did two years ago called The Myth Gap. Uh, and then more recently has broadened out into interest in this whole area of collective psychology and how people engage emotionally with political issues, particularly at the level of groups, communities and indeed whole societies. And we've talked a lot on Government versus the Robots about the kind of um, less than pretty state of our politics at the moment, both in the UK, the US and increasingly in different countries around the world. Um, and you've described in setting out the kind of collective psychology question, the vicious circle that we face in our politics. What's that vicious circle in your words? Well, I guess that back when I wrote The Myth Gap, I could see that people like Donald Trump and Nigel Farage were succeeding, not because of the quality of their evidence base, but because of their brilliance as storytellers and their ability to weave these very, very resonant narratives. 
Um, and back then I thought, well, you know, progressives are coming to these fights with spreadsheets and pie charts and they need to become good storytellers and then take these guys on and win. And I think that after a year of working at Avaaz running their Brexit campaign and then six months of living in Jerusalem and seeing really extreme political polarization close up, I came to think that actually anything that just deepens that rift at the center of our politics is part of the problem and that really what we need to be doing is building bridges at this point because particularly when you look at issues like climate change um, or species loss or global inequality these issues are way too big and way too complicated to be solved without a kind of broadly owned solution that the whole of society feels bought into it's not going to be won by the left beating the right um, and then I think what I realized latterly was that this isn't just a set of political issues out there in the world. Because, of course, in one sense, we live in a time where there's all sorts of crises mounting up in the world around us. And I just mentioned some of them. But equally, there's a mounting pile of crises happening inside of us. Things like depression and anxiety and suicide and self-harm and addiction and obesity. All of these mental health indicators going south. And I guess one of the ideas right at the heart of the Collective Psychology Project is that these are not separate from each other, that actually they're two flip sides of the same coin, and that when the world is messed up, that messes up our states of mind, and that as our states of mind become more anxious and more triggered, so we then behave in political ways that contribute to the messed upness of the world. So there's a kind of a feedback loop between inner and outer, which is really, really dangerous. I mean, it's a, a self-amplifying feedback loop. So I came to think as I started working on this that the challenge was how we reverse that polarity so that you have mutually reinforcing cycles of, if you like, internal and external healing, that healing the world uh, depends on healing ourselves and vice versa, that also healing ourselves depends on tackling real world injustices and grievances that are causing this terrible mental health toll. Carl's on the table. I personally have a huge amount of sympathy with that argument. But when I was thinking this through when I was preparing for the interview, I was like, well, there are a couple of assumptions here. So, then, you know, there's an assumption that this is a uniquely difficult time mentally. Um, and those indicators, you know, I, I don't have the facts at hand, but I'd think about something like obesity and I think, okay, well, that's also about ease of access to calories, for example, as much as it is about mental health. And there's, there's a complex picture. But my question is whether this is... Is that problem a global problem or is that problem something that's quite unique to advanced Western economies? Hmm. What a good question. So I think, first of all, I mean, on your obesity example, you're, of course, right. It is complex. There are a whole range of different drivers. And in a way, all I'm saying is let's not forget about the inner ones as well as the outer ones, the sort of, you know, food deserts and what food companies put in food and all of those real world issues. Of course, they are all significant. And there's also all of these inner drivers. Um, it's like when you look at consumerism. I mean, you know, there are all sorts of supply chains and advertising campaigns and things out there in the real world. And we often overconsume because we're using that as a kind of a salve for some inner wound, be that loneliness or fear that we don't belong or whatever it might be. So I think, yeah, it's a both and and it's very, very complex. And I'm not trying to distill this down to one driver. And a Western problem or a global problem? So I think, well, when you look at political polarisation, that's, of course, a global problem. I mean, lots of the media commentary that we see about it is predominantly about America um, or Europe. But of course, we then see the same problem playing out in Turkey, in the Philippines, in Tanzania, in Brazil, and Mexico, and many, many other countries. So in that sense, 
the polarization that we're seeing is a global phenomenon. On whether this is, if you like, a historically unprecedented situation, I mean, of course, you can point to lots of points in the relatively recent past, like look at the Second World War or the First World War um, or the Spanish influenza pandemic. I mean, these were enormous um, kind of perturbations in society, much bigger than anything we're facing at the moment. Or if you go further back and look at things like, I don't know, the Thirty Years' War, of course we're not living through anything on that scale. But I think there are some things that are different this time around. Um, One of them is that we are facing uh, threats that are genuinely existential in a way that we haven't seen before. So you look at climate breakdown or the Earth's sixth uh, mass extinction, but the first to be caused by a single species. These are not things we've encountered before. And of course, that then you know triggers anxieties in us, particularly because we feel powerless in the face of these enormous trends. But I think there's also the factor that we then have these tremendously powerful communication technologies, social media and so forth, which, um, as the psychologist Gina Ross has pointed out, are a bit like an emergent collective central nervous system. And so it's very easy for fear and anxiety uh, and other emotions like that to kind of ripple very easily through this collective central nervous system. So we've got this this sort of convergence of both very, very big, scary threats and these technologies which connect us but also allow our fears to ripple back and forth. And I think that is new. And I'm interested in your use of the word triggered, which is a very kind of contemporary word in a lot of senses. And I think is isn't always a million miles from use of the word snowflake. It's very much about the millennial generation. And you say that our, our politics is triggered. You know, is that when we think about triggered in a personal sense, it's often slightly used slightly pejoratively, I think. And it's about people um, feeling an irrational sense of or it, my perception is it's an, an irrational sense of offense or alarm or concern is it irrational you think the triggering that we're feeling collectively i suspect you might think it's rational from the answer you've just given i don't think it's rational in the sense of being something that we you know reach as a considered response to a situation um but neither do i mean it remotely in a pejorative sense and of course i i recognize what you're talking about and that people often do use it in the same breath as words like snowflake i think i'm using the word triggered to talk about fight flight freeze responses so um, people perceive a threat and then your kind of instinctive brain uh, reaches for one of those responses. It's fight or flight or freeze. Um, and I think one of the things that I'm especially interested in in this project is how we both individually and collectively come out of those instinctive responses, those defensive crouches, if you like, and instead build the mental, emotional, cognitive bandwidth to be able to choose how to respond to events. Um, And that, of course, is very much what things like mindfulness are about, for example, Um, lots of philosophical techniques. I mean, my brother wrote a best-selling book about how he'd used stoicism in his own life to be able, again, to choose how to respond to events rather than having his responses chosen for him by kind of instinctive, defensive uh, responses. So that stuff really matters politically, as it turns out. It becomes a core skill set for 21st century citizenship if we're to become resistant to deliberate attempts to trigger us by people like Cambridge Analytica or whoever. So I'm, I'm looking forward to asking about the relationship between this collective psychology and political messaging. Just before I do, one other thing that struck me in the kind of in the assumptions area was you wrote that things are feeling increasingly tribal. But again, tribalism feels like it's something that's it's always been a part of human life. I I definitely subscribe to the fact we're seeing increasingly polarised political discourse. Are we seeing increasing tribalism 
alongside that or is it this sort of the depth of tribalism as opposed to the fracturing of it so it's a really interesting one because i think that when people talk about polarization they do mean different things in america polarization is often a shorthand for political party positioning and the way that the republicans have headed out to the kind of tea party extreme um, and the democrats have also tacked more to a kind of populist left the bernie sanders end of politics rather than the hillary clinton end if you like but it can also mean different things. It can mean polarization of values. Um, it can mean polarization of the tenor of political discourse so that it just becomes more shrill and oppositional. Um, and it's very hard, as I discovered when I was doing some work for NYU on polarization, comparing different countries, it's very hard to find a, a single set of metrics to measure what it is that we're talking about. But I think that you know, everyone agrees that there is sort of more of it on all of these different uh, spectrums that I just mentioned. And I think tribalism is also part of that. I mean, certainly here in the UK, Remain and Leave have burst onto the scene as these tribal affiliations that are sources of identity, not just political viewpoints, um, in a way that we never would have expected five years ago. And there's some really interesting um, work out there on this macro trend in the background of sociological sorting. This is the trend whereby increasingly the people that we grow up with and study with and befriend and work with and marry and live in the same neighborhood as all have pretty similar backgrounds and viewpoints to the ones that we hold ourselves. So we live in these homogenous little bubbles and are less and less exposed to the viewpoints and experiences of people different from us. Um, and that that is also new. It used to be the case that there were many more places where you would meet a cross-section of society, whether that was, I don't know, going to church on a Sunday or doing your national service or whatever it might be. And uh, a friend of mine observed that these days the only uh, experience that's mandatory where you will definitely meet a cross-section of British society is if you get called up for jury service. So we do live in these little bubbles. And the problem is that then politics gets superimposed onto those bubbles and things that 50 years ago might have just been a difference of view are now about fundamentally different ways of life and sources of identity. So it's a much more potent brew. And that's something we've discussed a lot on the podcast, particularly on episodes which are recorded at South by Southwest, where we're looking at this question of hyper-personalisation of media leading to hyper-fragmentation of politics um, and the, the relationship between the two. If we have a collective psychology politically, presumably, you know, if we look at recent events in the UK, if we look at Brexit as a really clear example, and I went to a podcast recording of Dellingpod, um, to test my metal in such a kind of different atmosphere and I the first couple of minutes I really wanted to scream and kind of ask where all these people in the audience are coming from when they're cheering the points that Brendan O'Neill was making on the panel and uh, as it went on I realised that the emotion in the room from the audience the, the, the visceral sense of the other and the enemy almost if you like with it was exactly the same as I hear more frequently in Remain conversations that I naturally find myself in a little bit more often. And I was really struck by the fact that actually emotionally right now, around the Brexit question, I think most people in Britain have the same set of emotions. They just have a different set of actors to oppose. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I do. And it's funny listening to you talk about it. I mean, it feels great, doesn't it? It's really exciting. It's like, yeah, I'm with my crew. Let's take these guys down. Um, it is a very heady potion. And I think that there's really interesting dilemmas there for campaigners, for example, because you can, in your messaging, 
appeal to a sense of a larger us, a common humanity, an us that's the size of all 7 billion of the world's people and generations as yet unborn and other species. Or you can appeal to a them and us, which has a really clear villain, and you are in opposition to them. Now, either of those can be really effective at catalyzing a sense of belonging, at appealing to that tribal part of our psychology. But one of them is not good for us in the long term and leads us to a place of deeper and deeper division. But it's such a hard dilemma. If you are a head of campaigning at a big NGO, you know you can get a long way. You can get real wins out of appealing to the them and us kind of psychology. And of course, you may be aware in the back of your mind of the risk of winning the battle but losing the war. But, you know, when it comes time for your appraisal, are you going to be appraised on your contribution to the kind of long-term health of our polity or just did you get some tactical wins in the in the last 12 months and I think there's really big dilemmas there about do we all individually and in the places where we work go for bridge building or for firing up our base because you can get quite a long way on base firing what I would argue is you can't get far enough anywhere near far enough to solve issues like climate breakdown or mass extinction or hyper inequality but you know that dilemma, I think, needs to be surfaced and seen very crystal clear as there is a trade-off here and each of us has to make our own decision. And do you think that um, some of the most effective political strategists of the last decade or so, and I hesitatingly would probably say Steve Bannon's in there, Nigel Farage is in there, do they get this collective psychology? Do you think they understand it or is it a byproduct of what they do? Well, I think in their way, they're very skilled at psychology, at speaking you know, beyond data and pie charts and evidence to that, um, that part of us that thrives on values and narratives and belief. Um, and as I said at the beginning, that's something that progressives have often been really bad at. I mean, my home issue, if you like, is climate change. And I think back to what climate advocacy looked like circa 2005 or 2008. It was all based on the assumption, well, we've got the science on our side. So case closed. I mean, we've won the argument because the scientists say that we're right. And that's that's it, isn't it? And I think climate was one of the first issues to get really polarized because it was really one of the first things on the Tea Party's shopping list. And as a result, climate activists had to get wise much earlier. Um, and by the time of Obama's second term and the run up to the Paris Climate Summit, were much more running with these kind of resonant, values-led, insurgency sort of tactics. But I think coming back to your question about Trump and Farage and whether they're practitioners of collective psychology, I mean, you know, as I kind of hinted at in what I said a moment ago, it's, it's easier to win in a short-term way, at least, if you're playing a them-and-us game rather than a larger-us game. Um, the bar is lower for them. All they have to do is sow the seeds of division and get enough people to see the world in them-and-us terms and yeah, you know, that can translate into electoral success. But if you're concerned with transformational outcomes on things like climate breakdown, then of course, the bar is much higher, you have to build that widely shared sense of all of us are bought into this transformation. And we're going to make sure that it's a just, a just transition in which no one gets left behind. The bar is way higher than it is for the Brexit party, or for Steve Bannon. Um, and that's, that's just unlucky for us but doesn't detract from the fact that 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 is our challenge so i read the myth gap which was your book a couple of years ago on holiday uh, in a short space of time and i would recommend it to anybody who's listening because it, it lands a very important point which we're touching on here around the power of stories which speak to a larger us 
Um, and I wonder if in you could share in writing the book or in your thinking since, who does a larger us really well? Well, I think of it's really interesting. Not all that many people in politics. I mean, if we really thought about it, I'm sure we could come up with some uh, political leaders. But the people I think of more immediately are people in the culture sector. I mean, I think there's lots of storytellers who make movies, for example, or who are virtual reality producers who do this stuff incredibly well. I mean, the, you know, one of my favourite examples is how the UN, which is not generally good at doing communications, lit on the idea a few years back of having in the lobby of the UN building at the time of the General Assembly, which, you know, as you know, is a terribly dry affair with people just reading their talking points at each other. They set up a little booth in the lobby where delegates, as they arrived, could put on a virtual reality headset um, and have an experience of visiting a refugee camp um, and hearing stories from people who'd had to flee Syria. And the bit that always stayed with me in the New York Times article that wrote this up was how the woman who was running this little booth reported that she'd often get the headsets back wet with tears. And I was astonished the first time I read that because we're talking about hard-bitten diplomatic negotiators who are very cynical, seen-it-all type people, especially when they're there at the General Assembly in that kind of headspace. And yet the ability of that sort of storytelling to connect with them at an emotional level was really profound. There's another example in the myth gap of um, a negotiator from the Philippines at a UN climate summit in Warsaw a few years back. And this was just after Typhoon Haiyan had devastated the Philippines. And this negotiator stood up and began to speak about the impact that the typhoon had had on the Philippines. And in the course of doing so, broke down and just started sobbing in this full plenary hall with lots of diplomats in it. And it just transformed the atmosphere briefly um, and brought something real and authentic, this kind of raw grief into the room. And it had this transformational impact. So I think that it's it's less that there are specific leaders that talk consistently to a larger us. It's just that's something that's available to all of us at any time. Mm. And when we speak from that place and from the emotional authenticity that I think is part of it, we have an ability to connect that we absolutely don't, either when we're just doing them and us, or when we're just speaking from data and evidence and pie charts. And any keen students of effective communication should look at Yeb Sano. The, I, my pronunciation's bad, but the Philippines negotiator. He's called Yeb Sano, and he went on hunger strike uh, ahead of one of the cops as well. So he's very, he's, he's very good at that. uh, uh, sticking, up, right. sticking, up, sticking up for his country and making his points in a kind of very... A clever communication mm. style. So mm. he's, he's one to keep an eye on. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So if we accept that collectively our politics is triggered, we're all much more anxious and our political responses are therefore anxiety driven. I'm going to park my question about whether that means Brexit is a response to collective triggering. Actually, no, I'm not. Is Brexit a response to collective triggering? Well, it's really interesting. I think that when you look at the polling data on why Leave voters voted Leave or indeed why Trump voters voted Trump, you find that threat perception is pretty prominent. I mean, in the United States, one of the strongest predictors of people voting for Trump was agreement with the statement that the American way of life is threatened. Um, David Goodhart, in his book, The Road to Somewhere, observes that in the UK, um, a majority of, of Britons shortly before the Brexit referendum agreed with a statement that I think it was something like Britain increasingly feels like a foreign country and that makes me feel uncomfortable. Now, these are threat perception statements. Um, and of course, what's interesting is that as soon as the Trump election happened and as soon as the Brexit referendum happened, um, Democrats and Remain voters woke up feeling like they too lived in a foreign country and feeling pretty triggered by that. And so now we've got both sides feeling this pronounced sense of threat perception. And this was in a way the thing that got me into the whole collective psychology project in the first place, because I'd been working on Brexit at Avars was increasingly uneasy about polarization and wondering whether my campaigning for Remain was in some way sort of helping to deepen that polarization. And then when I went to Jerusalem uh, and saw, as I mentioned earlier, that much more extreme form of polarization, the thing that really fascinated me there and also I found hopeful was the observation from Gina Ross and other psychologists working there that you can't understand polarization between Israelis and Palestinians without understanding that continuous traumatic stress is basically endemic there, that everyone is living in a constant low-level state of threat perception, whether on the Israeli side that's of um, terrorist attack or being stabbed on the tram or of rocket attacks or invasions, and on the Palestinian side arbitrary arrest or living under kind of total surveillance or that your house might be the next one to be demolished. So everyone's triggered all the time. And it reminded me of Brexit living there. And it reminded me of Trump's America, not to the same degree, of course, but kind of on the spectrum. And then my next thought was, well, you know, am I reaching a bit? I mean, it's appropriate to talk about trauma in a clinical sense when people are living with constant threat of violence. But, you know, that doesn't apply to to most Leave voters or Trump voters. But the thing is that anxiety and threat perception for values of the sort that, you know, there's Americans who agree that the American way of life is threatened, espouse. These are all points on a threat perception spectrum. And so, in a way, if you want to overcome that polarization, before you can do anything, you have to dial down that threat perception before anything else can happen, before you can have any kind of reasoned dialogue or explore the things that you have in common. You have to alleviate the threat perception. Um, And so finding ways to do that, I think, is our most immediate task. And how do we do that? Well, I think that um, I think this is where things like civility, for example, matter. Um, Call out culture just fans the flames of that sense of threat perception, creates a sense of there is an other who is another whose values I disagree with, but they're out to get me. They're attacking me. I think that 
beyond that, it becomes really important to create the resources to help people manage their mental and emotional states. I mean, when you look back at Cambridge Analytica and how effective they were at, if you like, weaponizing our anxieties against us in this mashup of psychology and social media micro-targeting, it becomes really important to the health of our democracies to have a citizenry who are resilient to that. And that, you know, that involves skills that can absolutely be taught in schools or, or wherever, but that are not skills that we have invested much in creating. So actually, for the health of our democracies, we're playing catch up and we need to start figuring out ways of you know, making the standard in school curricula, for example, um, and also in making those resources available to adults. So unfortunately, it's quite a long term task. It's not something we're going to solve overnight. Um, each of us can take responsibility for how we contribute to discourse. And I think that actually how we behave on social media and whether we're buying into kind of you know, um, shaming people on Twitter or pylons on Facebook where we're sort of, you know, getting involved in sort of really furious rows, just stopping and asking ourselves whether we're part of the problem does matter. But for the really big transformational solutions, it is going to take time to build up those skills that I'm talking about. And what are those What are those skills? I mean, it's something you've, so people have been on the podcast before, um, several people have talked about the need to sort of uh, equip people with the ability to spot disinformation to navigate the internet sensibly to understand um, Rachel Everyone describes kind of being using the internet as skating on an ice rink and having no idea what's underneath the ice which is a nice analogy that's stuck with me so what are the specific skills if if you accept that Cambridge Analytica managed to use psychology to play on our anxieties or play on our desires and I mean, maybe there's not that much difference between the two but then how do you psychologically protect yourself from that? Right. I mean, I think there's, there's a galaxy of different ways of doing it. I mentioned mindfulness earlier, and that's one that in my own life I've found really helpful. I mean, I, I have grown up having a terrible temper, and I got to a point about five years ago where I just thought I don't want to keep kind of you know yelling at my kids and things like that, um, and found that actually doing a mindfulness practice, I was surprised by how much it enabled me to sort of just pause for a moment, take a breath, and then calm down, choose how to react. So that was a very effective nuts and bolts thing that worked for me. But equally, there are things like cognitive behavior therapy. Jonathan Haidt, the philosopher, runs a, a website called Open Mind, which will train you in identifying your own cognitive biases and then overcoming them, correcting for them. Um, you can learn how to do things like perspective taking, just making a habit of thinking, I wonder how the other person in this exchange or this dialogue is feeling and what their experience is that brought them to the perspective they're at. There's all sorts of things that you can learn to do and train for, and there's really good examples of them working in practice. But we just have to have the will to create an infrastructure to you know, get those skills out there. And I, I find that interesting. So I, I'm on my own personal journey with understanding what anxiety is and how it affects one's life. And also trying to to develop the discipline of mindfulness, which some days I think is a fantastic one, and other days I think it's doing nothing for me, but I'll keep moving in the right direction. And I could definitely attest to the fact that there have been things I would not have wanted to do that mindfulness practice has prevented me from doing in the first place that maybe a while ago I might have done. But it, it strikes me that a lot of these things, mindfulness, mental health, inner care, they're all quite sort of zeitgeisty in an urban metropolitan sense and that to get people to engage with them across the country there's a huge leap to be taken between 
uh, where the perception of people who apply these practices is now to that becoming something that is commonplace. And do you have any thoughts about how you navigate that? Because, I mean, it, it, to put it in slightly crass terms, people have to accept there's an issue before they tackle the issue. And it strikes me that we're quite a long way from people accepting that collectively we've all got an anxiety a collective anxiety problem sure and i think that in the way that you take this out into the world you wouldn't necessarily badge it as you know i'm now going to do uh, or we are now going to do a psychological thing together i think though that a lot of people would recognize that both they feel a sense of unease that they'd like to do something about and that there's things in the world that they're furious about or anxious about that they'd like to tackle as well and i think the idea that this is a sort of metropolitan thing I mean, of course, when you're looking at um, things like, I don't know, yoga or meditation, sure, of course. But when you look at history, I think there's nothing to suggest this is metropolitan. I mean, the two examples I think of is um, the spread of Quakerism or the spread of Methodism, both of which were very much internal in the sense that these are kind of religious practices, but also very much external, concerned with social justice um, and kind of campaigning and organizing. And these were not rooted in kind of, you know, their their equivalents of Islington at the time. They were rooted in working class areas and in rural areas as well, not just in cities. And I think prove that the resonance of these kinds of things is universal. This is part of human experience. This is stuff we all share. So I, I wouldn't accept the premise that this is only stuff that will work for kind of remainers in Hampstead uh, to caricature it. I definitely wouldn't have said it will only work for them. I just wonder whether it's easier for them to identify the benefits and and therefore do we if we are thinking about the larger us and we want the larger us to to take the prescription if you like then the willingness to take that prescription would require significant thought around how to communicate it yeah that's absolutely right um and i don't think i've got the answer on this i mean one of the things I've been very interested in doing the Collective Psychology Project is is this area of social contact theory, where you get people from different values tribes and put them together. And social contact theory is really concerned about the conditions in which that can produce consensus or at least a recognition of what the two sides have in common. Um, so if you look at something like the National Citizen Service, which takes 17 and 18-year-olds from all different backgrounds, puts them through a series of intense experiences over a, over the course of a summer, that's very much designed with social contact theory in mind to kind of create um, these experiences that will create a sense of a larger us among these people from different backgrounds. So I've been very interested in, well, what if we tried using social contact theory to bring groups of Remainers and Leavers together? But the thing that I've just kind of kept running at most and haven't figured out is, how do you brand that? How do you badge it? Because if it's come, if the pitch to people is come and spend your Tuesday night in a kind of, you know, drafty church hall with a bunch of people whose views you find profoundly irritating, that's not a prospectus that's going to motivate lots of people to come together. And when you look at the things that do bring people together from really different backgrounds, um, often it's because it's fun. Like you look at something like Park Run, lots of people come and do it because it's fun and it contributes to their health. Or at the other end of the spectrum, it's because people feel a profound sense of crisis. So why do people show up at Alcoholics Anonymous? Because, you know, there's no alternative anymore. Their life's in crisis and they need to take action. And I think, you know, I've, I've been fascinated throughout this process with small groups like Parkrun or Alcoholics Anonymous that are kind of self-organized and have the power to self-replicate. And I think there's extraordinary ability to go to scale there. But 
the big question that you have to answer at the outset is what's the kind of what's the prospectus what's the brand what's the thing that people are turning up for and you may not put because we're interested in collective psychology on the front but then what are you putting on the front and I don't know the answer to that yet that's something that I and the other people working on the project are still thinking about but it's a great question to throw out to everybody listening um incidentally New Zealand Jacinda Ardern who is, is a is a poster woman for many things uh they just switched their measure of kind of economic success from GDP to well-being hmm. and I remember sitting in a, an OECD conference in Delhi some years ago where people were discussing the fact that Bhutan had done the same thing and Bhutan felt small enough that nobody really thought see it no advanced economy thought seriously about it now New Zealand's done that is that something you would support is that something that you think plays into an understanding of a larger us measuring economic measuring a country's success by well-being rather than economic output so clearly i'm on board with the idea that gdp is a really stunted metric of progress and that we have to go for something much more sophisticated but on these indices of well-being like gross national happiness um i think you quickly get into fascinating and complicated and difficult ground about well what is it that you're measuring in the sense of well-being i mean i think there's some obvious low-hanging fruit that we should clearly include so not just gdp but also things like health life expectancy um, inequality have you eradicated extreme poverty those sorts of things clearly that should be part of the picture but once you get into well-being in the sense of mental well-being or happiness it's much more of a moving target because there's a fascinating literature about well what is it that we measure with happiness so you get these so-called hedonic questionnaires which just would ask you at points throughout the day rate how you feel on a scale of one to ten whether you feel happy or sad and you could take that as a proxy for, you know, is, are you living a good life? Um, you know, it's just a question of happiness, which is, if you like, quite a utilitarian approach. Um, but it doesn't really engage with deeper questions like, do you feel like you're contributing to society at large? Do you feel a sense of purpose? I mean, you could just feel happy because it's a nice day or you've got a pay rise or you just had an ice cream. It doesn't say anything about, are you growing? Are you contributing as a citizen? Are you being challenged in ways that are constructive for you so i think that questions of purpose or what philosophers would call eudaimonia are part of this too and they're much harder to track um, and much harder to quantify so i totally agree with the intent to move away from just gdp um and you know just saying there are these really hard questions about how you do that is not a reason not to engage with that we absolutely have to but it's not an easy set of answers and there's no obvious metric for measuring this and you touched towards the end of the paper on collective, collective psychology project paper on how we could rethink public services in a, in a world of a larger us where we got to grips with some of this. How would you see, and you, know, you don't necessarily need to paint the final picture, but how would you see an understanding of a larger us or collective psychology affecting public services like schools and hospitals? Well, I think that it's, again, it's back to the fact that learning how to... Uh, be a 21st century citizen in a, in a way that you think of a larger us and you're able to manage your mental and emotional state Th this is stuff that you can learn and in the report as you know the the report talks about three different transitions and one we've already touched on which is going from kind of fight or flight mode through to having enough self-awareness to choose how to react to situations the other two are one is moving from a sense of powerlessness which i think is a very common feeling both in people's own lives and in communities and politics uh, moving from that sense of powerless powerlessness to a sense of agency and then the other one is to move from a sense of disconnection 
whether that's loneliness or, or subtler forms of disconnection, through to a sense of belonging. Um, and all three of those transitions really matter. And all three of them are sort of habits that we can get into. And there are really interesting examples of organizations doing great work in all three of those. The bit that sort of fascinates me is that it's hard to point to many organizations that work on all three of those transitions, that work on self-awareness and on agency and on belonging. And I, I'm intrigued by the fact that historically religions have absolutely been about all three. And I think part of what we're dealing with here is the way that as religions have retreated from the public sphere, and then increasingly in the last few decades from a lot of people's individual lives, they've left behind this gap um, that's right at the cusp of individual and collective and at the cusp of inner and outer. We're not quite sure whose job this stuff is. So to come back to your question about public services, I think public services absolutely have a role to play. Um, there's lots that you can think of that we could do in education to train kids to sort of, you know, have that mental and emotional resilience that they can choose how to react and that they're just good at building a sense of agency and finding a sense of purpose or you know, knowing how to have challenging conversations or knowing how to organize politically. These are all good skills that you can teach or in the sense of belonging, just sort of you know, equipping people with the ability to create social capital or to have satisfying relationships. Um, these are all things that we can learn how to do. And they're all things where there are really great pioneer organizations, including in the public se sector. But I think the question lurking at the background is, how do we assemble this jigsaw puzzle so that we're really doing all of those things together? And it's not a plea to kind of reinvent religion or to go back to the religions that... Um, people are increasingly detaching themselves from. Um, I'm not prejudging that at all. I'm just observing that I think there's quite a deep universal human need for, you know, these these places where meaning and story and belonging and a sense of um, holding each other to account and personal transformation, all of those things that belong in religion, they still matter. And we may be in a less religious age, but those are still universal human needs. As as the son of a vicar, I've successfully avoided doing God thus far on Government versus the Robots, and I'm not going to demur from that now, but I do have a lot of sympathy with that and think it could be a very interesting conversation. Um, just to, to finish off, a couple of quick reflections. One of the questions that keeps springing to mind for me when interviewing guests on Government versus the Robots is increasingly it feels to me the big question is what do we do in individually actually you know i go to a lot of kind of hand-wringing conversations about this about whether it's about polarization or disinformation or whatever it might be and there's a kind of collective sense of fear but when it comes down to it the obligational requirement for individual action is much less focused on so you get a lot of kind of hand-wringing conversations and no one's like well what are you doing other than sitting here in this room and it strikes me that in order to support a larger us, there needs to be a very clear understanding of the individual role within that. And actually some of the things, mindfulness, whatever else it might be, some of the things that you're proposing are actually very much about taking individual responsibility for a collective problem. Is is that fair? Would you say that this is, you know, is it important to recognise individual responsibility in order to even arrive at collective responsibility? Yeah, it is. Um, I think that in a way what the collective psychology project is trying to hold in focus is the fact that this is simultaneously individual and very very personal and it's also about systemic change i'm a million miles away from you know i'm going back to climate change i'm the last person on earth to say oh well let's all just take care of our own emissions and you know ride bicycles and eat vegetarian diets and not look 
to systemic change. Of course, we have to have systemic change. And similarly, when we're talking about psychology, I'm not saying that psychology is in any way um, an alternative to doing the hard political work of tackling the real injustices and harms that are out there in the world. As I said at the beginning, I think it's a both and. And part of what the Collective Psychology Project is about is a recognition that in order to do that work of organizing and changing the real world, that our mental and emotional states matter for that. And I think that's true in two ways. I mean, as someone who's been a campaigner, you're never going to be the best campaigner you could be unless you're coming from, you know, a place of kind of connection and inspiration. But equally, if you're coming from a very triggered place, you can do harm. You can absolutely do harm. And I think when you look at lots of NGO strategies, um, they're kind of almost deliberately designed to trigger people with sort of really traumatizing imagery because they know that will work for fundraising strategies, for example. And I have a real issue with that kind of mode of campaigning. But I think that, yeah, I mean, of course, it matters. Um, The state of the world is, if you like, in large part determined by the sum total of all of our states of mind. So absolutely, the entry level requirement is that you're taking care of your own business and managing your own mental and emotional state. But it doesn't stop there, because I think, you know, as we've touched on in this conversation, the point is now in our hyper-connected age, our emotions and fears, but also our hopes and inspirations can ripple back and forth. So the line between individual and collective is blurrier than it's ever been. And so in taking care of our own mental health and emotional health, we're also starting to do system transformation. Um, And there are ways to amplify that um, for better or for worse. And unfortunately, at the moment, we're seeing a lot of the for the worse scenario. But I'm excited to see what happens as we get better at knowing how to harness connection technologies uh, for good um, and to sort of use them to propagate the more hopeful end of collective psychological experience. And I always try and end on a hopeful note because these conversations aren't always the most hopeful. Um, you've, you've wealth of experience in successful campaigning on kind of big global issues. To people who in their day-to-day lives, whether it's through campaigning or whether it's through working in, in public service, are trying to quote-unquote change the world, what do you think are the kind of lodestars in today's society that you need to be mindful of when you're campaigning to make sure that you're getting the best results? Well, I think the biggest one is to come from connection. As I mentioned earlier, when I worked at Avaz, um, Avaz is obviously very, very good at doing um, emails that connect with its members. And it's very satisfying to get that kind of real-time feedback about you know what is the action rate on the on the test that you just sent out what what percentage of people are even opening your email in the first place and that on on one hand is a sort of you know very technical metric based approach but equally you know you figure out pretty quickly when you're doing those sort of emails that actually the state that you're in when you draft those emails makes a huge difference you know when you're sort of connected and in the zone and writing something that connects Um, And I found that fascinating to play with when I was there, especially as a recovering policy wonk, that actually, you know, your state, um, as you were writing um, or speaking or whatever it was, um, you can absolutely trace in the metrics uh, whether that's connecting with people or not. Um, So I think that, yeah, that sense of connection to a sense of a larger us is where it all begins for me. It's a question of what you identify with and 
there's going to be, you know, as we head into this very turbulent period in history, this stretch of rapids on the river, if you like, there's going to be lots of prompts, uh, moments at which we could choose to see the world in them and us terms. But if enough of us are identifying with a larger us, that I think is going to be the single most important thing that tips the balance. And I'm especially interested in all of this with the question of what percentage of a system need to tip needs to tip to a new state for that then to become a chain reaction that ripples through the rest of the system. There's some really interesting work out there by campaigners and other people who are interested in social change. And it suggests that, you know, the proportion of people in, say, a democracy who you need to adopt new norms or, um, you know, categorically come out in protest against something is not all that big. It's somewhere between 3.5 and 12.5% um, for new norms like equal marriage, for example, then to ripple through the whole of society and then pretty soon just become universally accepted or as good as. And that fascinates me, that you don't need all that many people necessarily for a new set of norms to ripple through a society. Now, in terms of the number of people right now that identify as part of a global us, which is not incidentally something that I see as being at odds with being part of a local local us. I think there's a kind of nested identity thing going on there. But I don't think it's as much as 3.5% yet. But I think it's moving really quickly. And that's our basic challenge. Um, and I think we will find out in the next few years what proportion of people we need to identify with a larger us that's genuinely global in order for that to hit a tipping point and become something that a couple of generations from now is just something that obviously we all do. Uh, so that's where I feel hopeful because I think we are seeing that unfold. Um, and I think that's the, the transition that needs to unfold for us to get to where we need to get to. Well, let's hope we find out. Alex, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me on. That's all from Government versus the Robots this week. We'll be back next time taking a look at the use of disinformation in conflict. My thanks as ever to Sky Redman for her help with the editing and production of this podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please do tell your friends all about it. You can follow us on Twitter at govt underscore vs underscore robots.